thinking about the future. We're here in Matthew 24, and we're continuing to look at Jesus' extended exposition and explanation of the times of the end, the end times. We are diving in again to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is letting us know, he's telling us about the things about the future, what the future holds, and what we find is that the future isn't always easy, and the future is not always comfortable. And so he's preparing us for even the hard times, the hardest times on the planet, whether we are going to walk through them precisely or no, but that simultaneously prepares us for the hard times of our own life, whatever they might be. Because it's hard to explain difficulties of the future to those that maybe don't quite understand or cannot. Think about how you try and express such things to children. When your child is scared about something, what do you do? You might try and explain it to them. You might try and reassure them. But how? How can you explain things that might be so difficult? Well, of course, it depends. Well, what are they scared about or what are they upset about? That's going to guide how you explain things. So, for example, if they're scared about monsters in the closet, you just reassure them, well, monsters don't eat obedient little children that stay in their beds all night. I mean, you tell them monsters don't exist, right? Okay, but what if they're uneasy about something that is real, that is difficult, and maybe really hard? How do you tell them then? Well, you talk about it with them, again, on their terms, at their level. Imagine having to explain to your child, and you know, some of you have walked this road, explaining to your child that they're about to undergo a surgery. How do you walk through that? Well, you talk them through all the steps about what's going to happen, at least as much as they can understand and experience. Mommy and daddy are going to go with you to see the good doctor. And, and he's going to help you feel so much better in the end. He's going to take you in the back. They're going to put a special mask on you so you can take the best nap you've probably ever had. And then when you wake up, mommy and daddy are going to be right there with you. Now, your throat might hurt a little bit. That's true. But you can then have all the popsicles and ice cream you would ever want. How does that sound? Okay. Maybe a child can handle that. And as the child undergoes all of those steps then on surgery day, each step they experience, it becomes a reassurance that, oh, this is all playing out just as mommy and daddy told me. I can trust them. I know this is going to turn out okay. Well, in this text, Jesus reassures us, God's children, that is those who believe in Christ, who trust in Christ, encourages us to trust him, not just with our past, not just with our sins that he's paid for, and praise God he has, but to trust him, too, about our futures, about what's going to happen. To trust him about our future, even when it's hard. For Jesus in this text, he's going to walk us through the various hardest days of the future and how he's going to be able to sustain people's faith for the future. And that's going to be able then to get, if he can get our faith through the hardest days, the hardest time, and preserve his people, can he not sustain our faith through whatever trial or difficulty that we're going to walk through? And of course he can. But so the question is, how does he do it? And that's the repeating theme we see here, even as he explains and teaches. How will he sustain us? But by his word, his sure promise. This is how he sustains us, such that, to continue where we were two weeks ago, as we look at this text, the word for us is don't be alarmed. We don't need to freak out or fret about the future. Why? Because we can rest assured that even as things are going awry, so it seems, as things are fall, going all out of control, rest assured that God will still keep every promise of his word and all the way to the end so you can trust his plan. You can know that he is still good. He's still in control. He's keeping every part of his word there's no need to be alarmed. So as we started this text, we began with that first 
implication of this. There's no need to be alarmed if you identify the turning point. You can trust him. You don't need to be alarmed if you can identify the turning point. And so that's why he told us about that in verses 15 to 22. And that's what we looked at in depth two weeks ago. So we'll just do a brief summary now. Because here's the thing. If you know the turning point, if you know the key sign of those very last days, there's no need to be alarmed in the first place because you'll know, well, we're not there yet. These aren't yet the final days. We haven't seen that. This isn't the last seven years that Daniel talks about. But second, you don't need to be alarmed even for those believers that will see this event, that will see the abomination of desolation, it's called. Even those believers who see these things play out, they can rest assured. It's all going according to plan. God hasn't lost control. It's all going according to just as his word has said. And so that's where we started two weeks ago there in verse 15. Jesus gives us that sign, that key event that sticks out, that so uniquely identifies those times of the end. And the event is Daniel's abomination of desolation. Look at verse 15 of Matthew 24. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And again, two weeks ago, this took us then to a deep dive back into Daniel, namely Daniel 9, to study the prophet's 70 weeks or 77s that God had ordained for his people Israel. So where we saw in the first 69 weeks of years, that totaled up to 483 years, God kept his word to have a decree to have Jerusalem rebuilt in 444 B.C., all the way then to the Messiah who was going to be cut off, of course we know, the time of Jesus. And two, we saw, just as Daniel predicted, Jerusalem was to be destroyed, and it was. But that only accounts for 69 of the sevens. What about the last seven, those final seven years? Well, those days are what's picked up here in this Olivet Discourse. We call those the days of the Great Tribulation, where we read about an evil king, this ruler, this prince, who in the middle of that last seven, that last week, is so going to abominate and then desecrate the holy place, the temple. And then once that happens, Daniel explains, then the end will come. Or more clearly, Paul explains this event. We saw this last time. He describes it here, the abomination of desolation, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, when he writes, "...the man of lawlessness is revealed," or the Antichrist, "...the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this is the event, the turning point, that marks the very middle or turning point of that last week, the midway point of those final seven years. When you see this, when the Antichrist exalts himself as God, as he deifies himself, you know you're in the middle of the last judgment. And if you know that, if you can identify the event, then you know then there's no need to be alarmed. Because again, why? Because God's still in control. Now, that doesn't mean those final seven years, or in particular the last three and a half, that doesn't mean those are going to be easy years. As we see, as we just read, those in Judea at the time are supposed to run and flee. It's time to get out of Dodge. And you get out quickly. Don't, Don't go back and pick up anything. You just need to run. And it goes on to say the days are going to be so terrible after that point that we're not for God's mercy in shortening the days and controlling every moment of those days, everyone would perish. They would either perish or die or give in. But here's the word, God's still in control. 
for the good and sake of his people, even through the most hellish fires on earth, God's in control. Stay calm. There's no need to be alarmed. He's still keeping all of his word. That's what we saw two weeks ago. Now we turn to the next implication. There's no need to be alarmed if you ignore the false calls. Verses 23 to 28. That is, in the cries of chaos, Jesus assures us, remain calm. You don't need to be alarmed. Rather, you can tune out and ignore all of these, what we call now, right, fake news, these fake reports, oh, that he's already come. Look at verse 23 then of Matthew 24. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Now, if you remember, we saw this warning earlier, a very similar one in Matthew 24. So why does he repeat this warning again about being swayed about Christ coming before he actually came or would come? Well, consider this. As you walk through the horror and pain of this last seven years, these last days of wars, persecutions, we've talked about these birth pains, calamities, apostasy, betrayal. People are going to get desperate, aren't they? They're looking anywhere for a lifeline, some good news, some hope. Just give me a ripcord to get out of this. This is horrible. And so you might well imagine, as the whole world's falling apart, and then there's reports, but lo, Jesus has come. He's here, but he's come secret. Come see. Oh, yes, he's in hiding, but he's mounting an army. He's hatching a plan. He's building this underground resistance. Come see. Jesus says, don't believe him, not for a second. It's lies. Well, I would never fall for that. I would never be swayed by such lies. Jesus told me to look out for them. True, but again, these are going to be the only most desperate times ever on earth. And beyond this, the deceivers who are giving out these false messages, Jesus is here. He's mounting a secret rebellion. They are going to be, those deceivers are going to be at the top of their game because they're going to also be supernaturally equipped. They're going to have signs and equipment with them, proofs with them, well beyond nature can explain. Look at verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now notice, these are not fake wonders in that Jesus doesn't present these as magic tricks. These are not illusions. This is not some mass hypnosis. These are real defiances of nature, real signs and wonders. And yet they're also wrong. They're false and leading away from the truth. Take notice then. A bona fide miracle, a supernatural sign, cannot establish or make the truth. Signs and miracles can testify, can point to, or confirm truths, but they cannot make things true. A truth is true on its own. It doesn't need a miracle to prove it. Now, at times, God has given signs and wonders to confirm or point to His genuine messengers that they speak truth. Whether you had it with Moses and his staff, or the apostles with their healings. But nevertheless, take away the staff, take away the healings, God's Word, His message is still true. 
It hasn't changed. And so that's why you have to be most discerning and always test any message by the truth of His Word, always. You don't test it by the signs. You don't test it by miracles. You don't test it by book sales or the size of their church or the number of followers they have on Twitter. That won't tell you what's true. Only the Word of God tells you. It's not only true for the future of those last days. That's true now, okay, even with false signs and wonders. But that's been true for the history of God's people. Listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy 13. So a long time ago, historically, and God warned his people about false wonders coming from false prophets who give you a false message going after a false god. Listen to this. Consider this warning that God gave to Israel some time ago. This is Deuteronomy 13, and it goes like this. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... So he makes a prophetic prediction, and it happens. We're talking a real miracle, a real sign or wonder. But then, if he says, the text goes on, that is, we're on to his message. He said, here's a miracle, and it happened. But then you listen to his message. But if he tells you, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Well, why not? He, he did a miracle. The dude's got powers, right? He's in touch with the supernatural. No, he's preaching heresy, the doctrine of demons. And he supported it, apparently, by the work of demons to try and pull you away from the true God. His message is lies, even if all of his signs and wonders are real. So then no matter how astounding the miracle, no matter how incredible the sign or spectacular the wonder, or divine, the coincidence, wouldn't you know it, you must test their message by the word of God, and you cannot waver from it. Especially here, back to Matthew 24, the words of Christ as he gives them. Verse 25, he goes on, he says, See, I've told you beforehand. you got to trust me, and I'm warning you. I'm giving you the warnings on the front end, so you can encounter them when they come. Don't be fooled. I'm telling you how it's going to be. Now, what's the chief lie that's going to be disseminated in those last days. It's this deception that Jesus already came to earth, but he's come secretly. That maybe he's here underground plotting some great takeover. So join his ranks. Come out and follow us. Look at verse 26. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out, Jesus says. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, but Jesus says, don't believe it. Now, what assurance can we have that they're lying to us? I mean, didn't Jesus come kind of like secretly the first time? Couldn't he do it again? I mean, hardly anyone knew when he entered the world the first time. Just a couple poor Jews and some shepherds. God's broken into our world without much fanfare before. Why couldn't he do it again? Well, listen to Jesus. That's key, isn't it? Verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So how do we know he won't come to earth this time subtly or secretly? Because he promised he wouldn't. It'll be so obvious. It'll be like a flash of lightning in the sky. Everyone around will see it. He'll light up the sky. It will be visible clear-cut, unmistakable when he comes back. So that's why you can know these other self-attested Christs, Messiahs, and prophets are fakes, false liars, if they dare to claim that Jesus has already come, or worse, that they are him. He's not going to come till the very end, and when he does, it will be unmistakable. 
And there will be signs accompanying it when it happens. That's why he says this in verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That is, wherever the body, the event is, there will be signs that are all around it. Wherever there's a dead body, you're going to see the ravens or the vultures in the sky. You can know the body must be nearby. When Jesus comes back, there will be these key events. He's sharing with you these signs that will accompany his final return. So, in the meantime, in the spirit of ignoring these false calls, in the spirit of not getting caught up that you're going to miss something, don't be all caught up with the speculative theories or or be caught listening to all of these special prophecy hunters and end-time predictors. Again, they'll tell you a blood moon this, or a special moon means that, or this war means this and that, or Russia's going to do X, Y, and Z. And don't forget, there's the Euro and the New World Order, and Antichrist backwards in Russian means something fantastic. I know no Russian, to be very clear. I have no idea what that means. But that's the point. Don't listen to any of it. Jesus told you the signs you need to look for, and they're going to be obvious. They're not secrets. And the particular point he's pointed out so far is the abomination of desolation. It's going to be evident. You won't have to think, ooh, does the sun look a little darker today? Maybe this is the end. Don't be an alarmist. Stay calm. Keep the faith. Trust him. Don't believe all the false prophets and people on TV. Stick to his word. That's true. Stick to his word. Stay calm and carry on faithfully by his word. Ignore the false calls. Third, Incline your gaze. There's no need to be alarmed if you can look up and see the signs of the heavens. Verses 29 to 31. You don't need to be alarmed as you look up if you just incline your eye to the sky. The heavens will give us all the signs we need to know when Christ is coming. Until then, rest assured you haven't missed him. And until then, rest assured that means it's all happening by his plan. Let's look at verse 29 then. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, first off, we know we have a clear temporal sequence here or progression. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, remember, we heard the words about tribulation or a great tribulation before in Matthew 24, and we saw that in verse 21. Again, continuing the sequence, you were going to have the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist deifies himself, demanding worship from everyone. And that's going to then follow a torment on earth, a pouring out of judgment that's never before been seen and never will be afterward. Remember that? It's this great tribulation. Look at verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation or affliction, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. It's unprecedented, and it will never be repeated. That's how horrible these days will be. But then, as this greatest of afflictions wraps up, what happens next? Now we're at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, then Jesus describes these signs in the heavens that again indicate the end of the world's here, the world's falling and breaking apart. Again, can you sense why the actual coming of Jesus the second time will be so indisputable? going to be accompanied by these undeniable, incredible signs in the sky. Things like, it says, sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
And this is all language that was picked up from the Old Testament. This is judgment language coming out of the prophets as they describe the day of the Lord. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've seen it already in the book of Joel in our study of the Minor Prophets. So you can go read that at home if you're not in our study. But in particular, Jesus is quoting or referring to Isaiah 13, which describes the coming judgment, the coming day of the Lord like this. This is Isaiah 13, verse 9, and it reads, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven, their constellations, will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. And who's the one who's going to punish the world, to judge the world? Well, of course, in Isaiah, it's the Lord, Yahweh God. And here, though, as we look at Matthew 24, what does that judgment of the world happen to coincide with? The return of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, to earth. He is the one who's coming back to judge the earth. Look at verse 30, then, back to Matthew 24. Then, that is after or with these heavenly signs, will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and that all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The ultimate sign of the Son of Man will be seen in the heavens, in the sky, as He comes back in the clouds, as He returns from heaven, to save His people and to judge the earth. Remember in Acts 1, when he ascended to the Father's right hand, he escaped in a cloud, so to speak, and he's coming back on the clouds to judge the world and save his people. It will be a horrifying day for any that are outside of Christ. For this is a king like none has ever seen before. It's described like this when he comes in Revelation 19, verses 11 and following. This describes the great and terrible day when Jesus will come. Revelation 19.11 Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus, this returning king, is he's a returning king that you cannot miss. When this king enters to establish his rule back to earth, no one will question it. No one will wonder. Rather, those who've rebelled against him, what will they do? They will mourn. For it is then when he comes, the whole world will see him. Verse 30 again of Matthew 24, Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. All the tribes of the earth, all the peoples of the nations, those who rebelled against Jesus, who mocked Jesus, who said, oh, he's never coming back. If he's real, why doesn't he do something? They will see he's more real than they ever dreamed or hoped. They will realize their guilt and their doom. Again, as he comes with power and great weighty, glory. 
But his own people in the moment that remain on the earth will be gathered up, saved, and they will rejoice. Verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and he will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, where his people will then be safe, protected, and preserved to never be harmed again. While at the same time, the rebellious nations are judged and damned. The enemies of God vanquished. Again, all just as God had said. Salvation for his people. Judgment for those outside of Christ. Evil will be judged. Righteousness will be restored on earth under the rule and reign of King Jesus. That prayer and what we call the Lord's Prayer will become true. For his will that's being perfectly done in heaven will be done on earth and Jesus will see to it. And that hope, that's our longing, isn't it? Isn't that what we long for? For Christ to return, to right all of the wrongs in the world, even the wrongs that are in us. Don't we walk and stumble through this world and see our weakness? We're crying out, Lord Jesus, deliver us. And here's the glory of when this king comes. Because yes, he comes to right all the wrongs. And we have wrongs. He's going to establish justice and righteousness. But, but it's the Lord Jesus who's coming. He's the Lord of the Old Testament. That means he's the Lord and his judgment is married with mercy as he comes. So he comes with salvation in one hand and justice in the other. This is the glory of our God. And so it is in Luke's retelling of Jesus' teaching here. Luke adds these words, well, not adds, but he records these further words of Jesus. This is Luke 21, verse 28. Now, when you see these things begin to take place, he doesn't say cower, he doesn't say run away. What does he say? Straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Why? Because your Savior is near. And he's coming for you, coming to redeem you from all of this wrong of this world. He is coming to keep all of His Word, to finish the plan of God and so complete our redemption. Again, just as He said. And that's an astonishing thing. I mean, to think that picture, raise up your head, straighten up, look for your salvation to come as the whole world is breaking apart and falling about around you. To have so much breaking down, all the world falling to pieces, and yet you look up with hope and salvation and anticipation as he comes. And that's what we sung about this morning, right? In the great hymn, It is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. I mean, trying to imagine what that would look like in the heavens. And to not be just captivated by terror. And why not? Because also he goes on, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. The world's breaking apart even as the earth gives way. The mountains are moving, sliding into the heart of the sea. Our world all around us is literally falling to pieces. And yet we can sing, but we can only sing because of the cross. And we can only sing because of the promises of God. But what can we sing now? Even so it is well with my soul. And why? Because our redemption is near. Our God is coming back for us, as he said. A refuge, a strength, a very present help. And as he comes, he is no more present than at that moment than when he comes back to earth. And so he says, look up, hope in the day of my return. I died for you to redeem you. I satisfied the wrath of God. There's no more judgment for you. I'm coming to save you. Look up, here I come. And the church says in response, amen, come Lord Jesus. 
This is word anticipating the future of all the world falling apart around them. And of course, it's most true for that generation, that last generation who will see these things. But it's true for us as well. As we look up to the heavens, we also take assurance, though in a slightly different way. Not because we see the cataclysmic events and then know he's about to come. But what do we see when we look to the heavens now? The Bible points us to there regularly. What do you see when you look into the heavens? What have generations seen? But unending testimonies to God's faithfulness. We look to the heavens, we look to the skies, and what do we see? We see the sun rise and fall, but day after day. Seasons change, but they always return. Summer and winter, day and night, they never cease. That is, until God's done with them. And even when He's done with them, here's the glory. He's not done with us in Christ. Even the one who made all these faithful things, things that are so stable in our days, so so long-lasting beyond our days, despite whatever the climate change alarmist might say, even if the earth gives way, the sun darkens, the moon doesn't shine, the heavens shake, he hasn't changed. He doesn't shake. He's not caught off guard, and he never will be. Rather, it's all playing out according to his plan all by his script, a story that ends with redemption because a cross price was paid to ensure that his people will be safe all the way to the very end. I trust you see that this then is a confidence that can carry us through any trial. It can sustain us on the very worst days of earth. And that same faithfulness, the promise of his word, can sustain us through any trial in the meantime. So lift up your eyes. Don't be alarmed. See his faithful word hold you to the very end. Finally, there's no need to be alarmed if you can interpret the signs. If you can interpret the signs, verses 32 to 35. Finally, there's no need to be alarmed if you just interpret, if you read the road signs, the markers right. Because you'll know the whole time, as we've said, he's in control. And everything's on track, going right to its right destination. Interpret the right signs the right way, and you know we're on the right path to history's right end, all by the right and good hands of our God. And to make this point about the signs, Jesus leverages a familiar picture from everyday Israel. Verse 32, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, unlike in where we live, the fig tree of the land of Israel was one of the few trees that actually lost its leaves at winter, where it seems that all of our trees do, and very much so. But they had pretty much this one tree that lost its leaves, and so it stood out among all others then, especially during wintertime, as it looks dead. But then as spring comes, its branches sprout new blooms. And when that actually happens, it happens late in the spring such that you know summer's right at the door. Things are warming up. So interpret and read the fig tree's signs right. If you do so, you know summer's about here. We've heard it before. I know Rich has used this illustration. It's a good one. In a similar way, we experience the same kind of thing as we shop and we go around to various stores. As you're shopping in the various retail stores and home improvement stores, how can you be sure that Halloween has ended 
and we are almost to Christmas. Because everywhere you look, you can't get away from endless and gargantuan Christmas decorations everywhere. And earlier and earlier, it seems. There's the huge Grinch inflatables, right? The reeds, the trees. It's telling you all, Christmas is coming. Start your shopping. Well, the fig tree begins to decorate its branches, so to speak, right as things turn to summer. And so with that in mind, Jesus ties the fig tree to the very end of days. It's a sign the end is near. Verse 33, So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Why is he talking about this? Think where we started. Think back to their initial question back in verse 3. The disciples asked Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What is the sign, the indicator that you're coming back and the world is to end? Well, that's what he's told them from verses 4 to 31. Here's the signs. Learn like the fig tree. When these things happen, you know summer is near. You know the end is near. You know I'm about to come. These pointers, these indicators, these are the clues in history that you're on the right path to the end. As you see these events, you know history is running its course to the very end, eventually to Jesus' return. It's coming soon. Think of it like this, to use another analogy. With family in Kansas City, our family is driven a number of times there and back from Richmond to Kansas City. And let's imagine you knew that and you were planning your own trip. Where else to go this summer than to go to hot and humid Kansas City? It's a delightful place, trust me. But if you're going to make that road trip and you've never been before, especially if you didn't have GPS like back in the day, it's nice to chat with somebody who's been down that road before, who's driven it many times and gives you the markers to look for and think about and anticipate on your route. And why is that so important? Because those clues, they tell you as you go, you're on the right track. So, for example, I tell you, well, you're going to drive through Beckley going west on 64, and you'll hit that cool travel plaza. It's a great place to maybe grab a pizza and grab some coffee. And then you're going to Charleston. And then as you hit through west through Charleston, you know you've hit Kentucky when you see these beautiful green plains and all of the horse farms. And then you come up on Louisville. But then when you see the St. Louis Arch, you're almost home to the best barbecue on the whole planet there in Kansas City. There's no need to stop for lunch. You want to eat lunch at Jack Stack in Kansas City, in Upland Park. But when you're driving to an unfamiliar place, and you've been told how it's going to be, but you don't see those markers, then you know you've gone the wrong way. You know something's wrong. It, it warns you, alert, alert. It, you're on, you took a wrong turn. So Jesus says, look around. I'm telling you exactly how history is going to unfold. Interpret the events and signs around you so you know when and where you are. Because know this, and this is really the crux of Jesus' point, it will happen just as he said it will. To lean on a driving analogy a little bit further, he can tell you all the landmarks along the way. Because he's been there and back, so to speak, many times, or more accurately, he's controlling all of the events. He's creating the landmarks to be seen. How can he do that? He's in control. Every detail's in his hands, and all of his plan is coming to pass. In effect, that's where he ends this whole discussion about the signs. He knows because he's in control. Look at verse 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now, this is curious. Well, what does he mean here by this generation? 
What does he mean this generation won't pass away until all these things take place? Well, there's two more obvious of the many interpretations that are, would make immediate sense. The first one is that when he says this generation, he's talking to the apostles, and he means the apostles' generation. That that generation won't pass away until all of these signs come to pass. However, there's a big problem. The apostles are all gone, and we're still waiting for these signs to happen. So how do we make sense of this? Well, but it refers to the generation that's going to be there in those final days. The point is, these events are not going to take thousands of years to develop. This is a specific, as we saw in Daniel, seven years, and that generation is going to be the completion and culmination of all of it. So the generation that sees the birth pains, the generation that sees the abomination of desolation, that sees the Antichrist defy him, deify himself, sees all of those wars, sees the suns darken, that's the last one and that's the end. That's the culmination and the promises of God, the word of Christ will be fulfilled. In other words, that generation that sees these things thankfully will be the last. Such horrors of those seven years will be short-lived, so to speak. They will end at his coming. Well, how do we know? Maybe it could get even worse. Well, here it is. How do we know? Because Jesus said so, and his word is sure. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And that's what this comes down to in the end. Even in the worst of days, whether we're talking about the worst of days of our whole planet, or we're just talking about the worst of days of our own, the worst of days in our own life, even if it means staring death in the face. For us, that is not a moment to be alarmed. And why not? Because even in the worst of days, Jesus is still going to keep every promise of his word. Even through the worst tribulations of all time or just the worst ones of our lives. In other words, his promises to do us good, won't, they haven't changed. The cross hasn't changed that he died for your sins. His righteousness hasn't diminished, so now that God's angry with you, he's not. That's all been settled at the cross, and we rest in that, and we remind one another of that. And we know that even through the the hardest tribulations, salvation awaits in the end. Why? Because he promised and he paid for it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, Jesus said, and believe also in me. Because his word proves true every time. Trust the God who knows the future. Trust the God who controls the future, just as he said. Trust and know that even through the tribulations of these life, of this life, he's still working it all together for good, again, just as he said. Like in Romans 8:28, for we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And more than this, praise God, he's also graciously proven it. He didn't just say it, but he came to this earth, he endured tribulation, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, he conquered the greatest enemies of defeat and death and Satan. And he won. So not even death and the wrath of God can keep him from keeping his good word to you or any of the promises of God. Don't be alarmed. Trust him to the very end. But for how long? How long do we have to wait? Well, Lord willing, we'll turn to that answer next week when we look at verse 36. But till then, we keep looking to him and to his word. Because nothing can stop his promises. Nothing will change his word. His word to, in Christ, redeem you, save you, and keep you, just as he said. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you because your word is sure. 
that even in so much in our world, so many changing reports and news, heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. This is what we stand on. Even as we struggle to understand it all, we rejoice that it is true. We rejoice that there we find that you're merciful to sinners. We rejoice that you have not left us to ourselves, but even you're coming back to save us. So, Lord Jesus, as you've told us what to anticipate, when we stand confidently on your word and walk in that hope that as the world is falling apart, we have something that is more sure that we can stand on, and it is you. May that be evident in the way we live for the glory of Christ, because you bought this people by your blood. For your glory and for this we pray. Amen.